If I was given a commission to go throughout the world, Jesus came to me and said, Rick, I, I want you to go preach. And I want you to preach in every town, of every city, of every county, of every state in America. And then I want you to head on up to Canada and speak in every province. I want you to head down to Mexico, speak in every village. If the Lord said, Rick, I want you to get on a plane and fly across to Europe. And then I want you to continue on to Africa and the Middle East. If I, went, if I had opportunity to do that, And then the Lord threw in this caveat, but you can only choose one passage of Scripture to teach. I would talk about what we're going to talk about this morning. I would open up my Bible to Matthew chapter 16. And I would teach verses 13 through 20. Because to my understanding, limited though it may be, there is no more significant or important or life-impacting passage of Scripture than what we're going to talk about today. This morning also marks five years to the day since the first time we met in the barn. It was January 11th, 2004. And here we are, January 11th, 2009, and I didn't have vision to see this far ahead. I didn't imagine that we'd be sitting here like this, gathered and, and facing the things we're facing. On the cusp of 2009, we've got some great challenges ahead. We also have greater opportunities because of those challenges. Jim came up this morning and he said... Uh, you know, I was thinking about this whole issue of, of the barn and the cease and desist and the county and all that and the land we've got over there. And he said, you know, I, I, I see a, a connection to the way the Lord often works where He tightens the screws, He closes things down where you're comfortable because He wants you to move on and to get on to what He wants to continue to accomplish. You know, we're tucked away here in this comfortable barn. I know it's a little cold, but, but it's still, this is kind of home to so many of us and has been for five years. But we're at the point now where, and I agree fully with what Jim said, I think the Lord is saying it's time to get out. It's time to be more visible. It's time to have a greater impact than you're having right now. It's time to move on so that my word can move out, so that more people can know about Jesus. It's time to go forward. And so I I challenge you to be thinking about that. We don't really have any huge barriers in front of us to get over onto that property other than, you know, about $2 million. It's not a big deal. (laughs) And I'm not even kidding, gang. My father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. When it's time, when it's right, God's going to provide. He's going to provide through each of us. He's going to provide in other miraculous ways. But I challenge you to be ready for what God is going to do. And as I said a few weeks back, if you're not ready for what God is going to do and is doing at the bridge, then you don't have to go. That's okay. I want you all to go. I want you all to be involved with this, but please don't feel like you're dragged along because the last person I want sitting among us is a naysayer. So consider that. Think about God's call. And be ready to go forward. This, this morning is important because, again, as we find ourselves in Matthew 16, it is the defining statement of all Scripture. We talk about all the things that we could do or accomplish or be as a church. This is the defining statement. This not only is the single most defining question of human existence, but gang, how you answer it, the question that is posed in this chapter, how you answer it, is going to not only define your lives, it will determine your faith, and it will absolutely direct your future. Let's read it together. Matthew 16 and verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, Who do people say 
that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. And others, Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Father, I say you're the Christ. Jesus, the Son of the living God. And as we do often here, we declare your Lordship, your authority, that you are Christ over this fellowship and over our lives. I believe, Jesus, absolutely that you are Messiah, fulfilling every single Hebrew prophecy, coming into this world just as was planned before the foundations of the world. And on that statement of belief, we stand this morning. And it is my prayer, Lord, that if there's anybody who does not stand on that statement of belief this morning, that by the time they have heard from Your Word this morning, they will make that decision. For we recognize, Lord, this answer is what changes and defines us. Lord Jesus, would You see this deep into our hearts that we might walk truly as those who believe in You, the Christ, Son of the living God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Who do you say that I am? That is the defining question. Now to ask this question, it interests me, Jesus led His followers north, about 30 miles north of the Galilee, to a place considered, an isolated place, considered to be the very end of Judea. Jesus led His disciples away from the threats of the Pharisees, away from the throngs of the people, and brought them to a very interesting location. Today it's called Banyas. It's from the name originally Panaeus, Panaeus was uh, named after the Greek god Pan. And there still today are the remnants carved in rock of a temple to the god Pan. And it's this location that many believe Jesus led His apostles to. It had another name by the time Jesus walked, and that's Caesarea Philippi. There in Caesarea Philippi, we find, if you were to travel there as you can, as we have in the past, a beautiful, lush location. It is the place where the headwaters of the Jordan bubble and flow out of rock. They used to pound out of the rock. Now they just kind of seep out and begin to form little streamlets and little bubbling pools that gather together and ultimately become the Jordan River. There's an interesting grotto there, a large grotto called the Banyas Cave. It's 15 meters high by 20 meters wide and pools of water lined with tall silver poplar trees fill the area. It's a favorite stop of mine on the Israel tour. In fact, there's a great little location there with some some benches and some trees where you can sit and you can look at this massive rock face and join Jesus and the apostles when He asked the question, Who do you say that I am? He asked that question right there in that location. It's a profound backdrop for the most significant teaching of Jesus Christ in any of the Gospels. It is the hinge point of Jesus' ministry for standing there before that great rock face. Jesus is going to make that wonderful statement, Upon this rock I will build my church. He was purposeful in His teaching. I love that about Jesus. He's not random. Even to where He was locationally, He uses the environment. He used everything around Him. And in front of this massive rock, He says, Upon this rock... And the apostles would have a picture of something firm and lasting and strong, a foundation sure and secure. 
upon this rock. Well, before we look at that statement, let's draw back just a bit. Verse 14, he asked that interesting question. Who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? The apostles' answer is interesting to me. They say, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. This is what the people perceive Jesus to be. You may recall a few chapters back, Herod was scared to death. Because he thought Jesus was actually a reincarnation of John the Baptist, who he had just beheaded. Herod was a superstitious guy. A lot of people were superstitious in, that, in those days. And as they looked at Jesus, they thought, the questions roved around. People talked about, could he be? Could he be John the Baptist again, who we know was killed? But, but John the Baptist come back, which is kind of silly, because people saw John the Baptist and Jesus both at the same time alive. Now others said, well, maybe he's Elijah. He certainly is functioning in the power of Elijah. He certainly is doing miracles just like Elijah did. This would be astounding for Israel. It would be as astounding for them as it would be for us if a miracle man walked among us and began doing Hebrew prophetic miracles, supernatural things, here today. It had been 400 years since they had seen anything like this. Probably more than that, because even the last of the prophets weren't so much into doing supernatural miracles as just preaching the Word. They see Jesus healing the sick and raising the dead, walking on the water. No wonder some said, could this be Elijah returned to us? Still others said, maybe he's Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who was called the weeping prophet because he cared so deeply for Israel. Jeremiah prophesied in a messy time for Israel. In fact, in 586 B.C., you all know what happened, you Bible students. That was the fall of the temple the first time. That was when Babylon came in and wiped out Jerusalem. Literally raised it to the ground. And as the temple was being destroyed in 586 B.C., the prophet Jeremiah, he stood up on the Mount of Olives watching this occur. And there on the Mount of Olives, he was weeping. And praying, in fact, that's where he began to sit down and write Lamentations. That small but depressing and sorrowful book in the Hebrew Scriptures. How like Jeremiah, Jesus truly was. He was called a man of sorrows. How like Jeremiah, Jesus was. In fact, he would stand on the Mount of Olives in almost the exact same place. And look out over Jerusalem and cry out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets. And stone those who are sent to you. How I have longed to gather you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not have it. It's a lot like Jeremiah. Incredible compassion. And so people would look at Jesus and they'd see preaching like John the Baptist. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, just like John. And he taught great moral principles just like John. Some saw Elijah in the power. Some saw the passion of Jeremiah. And if you think about it, gang, churches today can be characterized by these prophets. There are John the Baptist churches. Oh, churches, Christian churches, but who pattern themselves, themselves after John the Baptist ministry, you might call them the moral majority. This would be the church that gets political. This would be the church that is an activism church. The saying, sign up and vote, and, and would have a voting rally and would be focused on the, po- the politics of the day. That's what John the Baptist was about. Not a bad thing, by the way. I'm not saying this in the negative at all. There are churches called to that place. John the Baptist style churches. But gang, if we view Jesus like Elijah, 
then our church would be seen more by manifestations of miraculous power. We would be chasing after the supernatural. We would want to see the great works of the Lord among us. And there are churches that do that and see that today. Elijah churches. We look at him like Jeremiah. Our entire mission and vision would be prophetic evangelism. To get out and save the lost. We would be about evangelism programs and door knocking and and bring a friend Sundays and all these things. Again, not a bad thing if we were to pattern ourselves after Jeremiah. And I have sat in church meetings time after time over the years where purpose statements and mission statements and vision statements are debated just like that. Should we be this kind of church or that kind of church or this kind of church or a blend of all these things? What kind of a church are we supposed to be? That's the question I asked Jesus before we ever started the bridge. What kind of church is this supposed to be? Give me a vision. And He was silent on that. And I didn't appreciate it one bit. Because I had to stand up and teach the Bible without any idea where we were going. And I've joked about this before, but I say it again today. If you ask me where we're going to be in a year, I can't answer that question. I have no idea. I mean, I'm truly one clueless pastor. But the question is always asked among churches and among church leaders. Should we be this or should we be that or should we be the other? But gang, Jesus is not fashioned after any of these. Jesus came before. He came before John the Baptist. John said, after me comes one who was before me. The thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to... I am not worthy to... How did it go? I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie Jesus came before Jeremiah. Huh? I thought Jeremiah was back there in 586 before Christ. Yeah, but Jesus came before him. Jesus came before Elijah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He existed long before. And so our churches, gang, are not to be patterned after John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, but to be patterned after Jesus Christ. That He is the model. That He is the focus. He is where we are going. And so Jesus wonderfully interrupts these misconceptions as as the disciples are throwing out, well, some say John the Baptist and some Elijah and some Jeremiah. Jesus interrupts and says, okay, okay, guys, quiet down. Who do you say that I am? The defining question. And Simon Peter answered in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. This is incredibly important to realize. Jesus asks the question. Peter gives the answer. And then Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my church. And some have taken that to mean Peter is the rock upon which the church is built. Pope Peter, the first of the popes. And the church will be built, therefore, after him and upon him. And that's not what it means. Peter's name was originally Shimon. Simon. Shimon in the Hebrew. And Jesus renames him, nicknames him Petros in the Greek. Petros. P-E-T-R-O-S. Which means pebble. Pebble. Little rock. Or best yet, Rocky. That would be his name. And if the church were to be built on Peter, then our theme song would no doubt be... Because his name meant Rocky. But Jesus turns around and says, Upon this rock I will build my church. Again, think about where they were, Caesarea Philippi. 
There are pebbles all over the ground. There was a massive bedrock right behind him. Let me give you the contrast Jesus is saying. You're rocky. You just made a statement of faith. That's great. But upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon rocky, Peter? No. Upon this rock, this Petra, P-E-T-R-A is the word used there. Upon this rock, this bedrock, this foundation stone, that's what Petra means. Petras, pebble, Petra, massive bedrock. Okay, the foundation of the church is not Pope Pebble. The bedrock of the church is the confession of Christ. That's the bedrock. Peter's confession. And it could have been James, and it could have been John, and it could have been anybody else. It didn't matter who it was. It was the confession. That is the bedrock of the church of Jesus Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by the way, it's confession by revelation. Peter didn't know what he was saying, really, except that God revealed it to him. It's one of the most precious, gentle, and funny statements Jesus makes in Scripture. Blessed are you, Peter. (laughs) Shimon. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. I've said before, Peter, you're not smart enough to figure this one out on your own. My Father revealed it to you. The reason why you were able to confess anything at all, Peter... It's because my Father gave you revelation. And so it is confession by revelation. Hear me, gang. Anyone born again, anyone who is truly born again, has the truth revealed to them. No one ever just comes up with it on their own. John 6.44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to me and I will raise him up on the last day. John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto Myself. There is a drawing that happens, a revelation that happens, and until that revelation is given, you don't know who Christ is. To be born again truly is to to speak confession by revelation. Wait, so you're saying it depends on God whether or not I get saved? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So, are you telling me that there are some people He won't reveal Himself to? Exactly. Sounds kind of deterministic, Rick. Well, it's not at all. He's just not going to reveal himself to you until your heart's ready. And I'll tell you when the heart is ready. I've had this conversation a number of times when someone's saying, you've got something here, and I really want it. Or someone's saying, I don't know where to turn or what to do. I know there's more out there. And to that person I would say, then pray for revelation. You ask God, the person who cries out, God help me. Like the Syrophoenician woman back in chapter 15, we talked about her on Wednesday night. Lord, help me. At that point, the heart is open and God goes, all right, now I will show you who you need to run to. And to be born again begins with the Father and enters our heart and returns to the Father. Confession by revelation. And all you have to do to get that revelation is ask for it. And people do it every day. I don't know where to turn. You know, it's that scene in A Wonderful Life. I told you I wasn't going to use any silly examples. Sorry. It's that scene in A Wonderful Life where George Bailey's sitting at the bar and he says, Lord, I'm not a praying man, but if you're out there and you can hear me, show me the way. That's the prayer that opens the door to revelation. Well, Peter got it good. He knew the church wasn't built on his uniqueness as a pebble. (laughs) 
He knew the church was built on the rock of confession. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter said, Coming to Him is to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The bedrock of the church game is the confession of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And it connects with Psalm 127, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who built it. And I sit down. I sat down five years ago at the Warm Beach Conference Center, and I asked God, if you want this thing to happen, you've got to show me how. I said a few minutes ago, He was silent on programs and strategies and, and, and even vision and mission. He didn't give me any of that. You know what He said? He said, I will build my church. I was more relieved in that moment than I had ever been in my entire professional ministry life. I will build my church. And it dawned on me, that means I don't have to. Alright. I like that. I can track that, Father. You're saying it doesn't depend on me. I just get to show up and watch you do it. That's exactly it. I will build my church. By the way, this is the first time here in Matthew 16 first time, in fact, in all the Gospels that Jesus will use the word church. He's never used it before here. He'll only use it twice before His resurrection. After it, He'll use it several times. In the Revelation to John, He uses it numerous times in the first couple or three chapters. But before His resurrection, Jesus used it twice. This is the first time. And the second time further defines the role of the church. We'll get there in just a minute. But Jesus didn't even respond to the guesswork of the people as to who he was. It wasn't the confession of John or the confession of, of Elijah or of Jeremiah that he was looking for. Jesus was looking for the confession of him as Mashiach in the Hebrew, Messiah, Christ, Savior. And that's how Jesus builds his church. On this confession. What do you mean by that? Very simply put, As we confess Jesus, day in, day out, week in, week out, He builds His church. What relies on you, what relies on me in terms of the building of the church, is simply the confession of Jesus as the Christ. And as I confess that, He begins to build, He begins to do things, because the foundation is laid. The single purpose and calling of the church is this. To confess Jesus... And by that constant confession to love Him above all others. That's it. If we do that alone, He will build His church. I'm absolutely convinced of it. To confess Him and to love Him. You know, we are called the Bride of Christ. It's interesting to me that when you look at the words Petrus for Peter and Petra for rock for the church, that Petros is in the masculine form. Little pebble, masculine pebble. But Petra, the bedrock, is in the feminine form. Just as the church is in the feminine form, the church is a bride. 
the bride of Christ, who is to love Christ. Paul said in Ephesians 5.31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And he says this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. That whole passage in Ephesians 5 is not how to have a healthy marriage, although it works. It's about Jesus and the church, who is His bride. Speaking of marriage, we have a ceremonial phrase that we like to use. Marriage ceremonies, till death do us part. It's the one phrase in the marriage ceremony I hate the most because it's so just depressing. We love each other. We're going to be together forever till we die. You know, till that dark day, and then, you know. But not even death, gang, can stop the progression of the bride of Christ toward the coming marriage feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19. In fact, in the next part of this verse, Jesus even indicates His own death would not hinder but would help the church along this journey. Watch this. I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. No doubt you've heard this verse used in a sermon to say the church should advance. Because gates don't advance, so gates can't overpower the church. So the picture here is the church charging the gates of Hades. Going to the very gates of hell to grab people and save their lives. Hey, it makes for great preaching, but I do not believe that's what Jesus is saying. Listen again. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. I believe this is referring to Jesus' imminent death on the cross. Why? Well, the phrase, the gates of Hades, to the Jewish mind simply meant death. That's what the gates of Hades was. Death will not overpower this thing. Death has no dominion over the rock of this confession, over this thing called church that I've just mentioned for the first time, Jesus would say. Death has no power here. Okay, but why do you think then that that speaks of Jesus' death? Because in verse 21 it tells us, from that time, a phrase I have highlighted in my Bible, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. From this day forward, from this hinge point, this defining moment, Jesus now sets His sights on the cross. From here on out, throughout the ministry of Jesus, what's left of it, He is going to Jerusalem. He is going to the cross. He talks about it many times with His disciples. He begins almost on a daily basis, we're told, from that time. He began to show His disciples what's coming. Get ready. He hadn't talked about it before here. He hadn't brought it up before this point. You see, Peter's confession is what Jesus was waiting for. Peter's confession, all he needed was one person on earth to confess that he was the Christ and he was good to go. All he really needs is one person on North Whidbey Island to confess that he's the Christ and he's good to go. How great is it that we are a body of people confessing Jesus is Christ? How much more power is there when that foundation has been laid for him to move in great ways if we would but be a people who confess the name of Jesus? All it took was one. Peter makes the confession and Jesus goes, All right, boys, now I can tell you here's where this is going. Now you know this is what it's all about. Peter says you're the Christ and everything changed. Verse 19, then Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatsoever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. 
We've already heard from Jesus that the kingdom of heaven is larger than just the church. In fact, Jesus does something surprising here. He's talking about the church, and then he shifts and starts talking about the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you happen to miss this teaching, it was in Matthew 13 where he gives three parables. Seven, actually, but there are three specific where he talks about a hidden treasure, which is Israel, and a costly pearl, which is the church, and a dragnet of fish, which are saints, tribulation saints, people who come to faith in Jesus after the church has been caught up. And all this together makes up the kingdom of heaven. So the church is just one aspect of it. But, but Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. These are not church keys. They are kingdom keys. They are keys Jesus is about to give here that will impact Israel. They will impact the church. And eventually they will impact tribulation saints or those who come to faith in Jesus after we're gone. But here's what you've got to know. Jesus makes these keys available to you and to me. Now there are people who would disagree with me on that. They would say, no, these keys are apostolic keys given to Peter. He's talking to Peter, maybe the apostles, but that's where the keys go. These kingdom keys. Listen, I believe that Jesus makes them available to all of us. Yes to Peter. Yes to all the apostles. In fact, in John 20, Jesus will come back and He will breathe on them. And He will repeat this, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. John chapter 20, that happens. But I believe, I'm convinced, and I've been reading over this and praying this through, gang, any believer who makes the same confession that Peter made bears the same kingdom authority. Any believer who claims Christ Jesus, the Son of the living God, has the keys of the kingdom. That's you. And that's me. And many of us have keys rattling around in our pockets that we've never used. They're the keys of our authority as children of God. Why would you make that statement, Rick? Well, Peter really made it for us. He said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. What's that? Confession. Proclaiming His excellencies. Talking about the light of Jesus Christ. That is our confession. It's our power. It's our authority. We have in our hands, gang, if you've made that great confession, you hold the keys of the kingdom. But let's get away from just spiritualizing it. What are the keys of the kingdom? There are two people specifically given keys in the Bible. Two types of people. Scribes and stewards. Scribes in the Bible would have keys. The keys of the scribe. Keys of the scribe, literally that's what they called a badge of authority worn by those in the office of scribe. They were called the keys. And so a scribe who was ordained for the job that he had was called one who had the keys. The keys of the scribe. And the scribe's role was absolutely clear. Teach the word. Teach the word. For that word, you bear in your hands authority. I can stand up here. I I can't tell you how much confidence I have when I speak to you every Sunday, every Wednesday, and times in between. And it's not because I think I'm a good speaker. It's because I'm holding the Word of God in my hands. It's because this is the standard by which I teach. Not my ideas. Not my little thoughts on how I can help you better your lives because (laughs) I need enough help with my own. But when I stand up with the Word of God in my hands, I I hold an authority. Cheryl gave me this, this Bible for Christmas. It's a great little Bible handy, and it's light, so my hands aren't 
tired at the end of the day? And she wrote in it, from Exodus 13.21, she wrote, this is your cloud of witnesses. I love that. I'm walking around with a cloud of witnesses here. Someone says, why do you believe that? If I don't have the answer, well, let's see. Let's just see if we can find it right here. I know it's here. The Word of God has not failed me yet. The scribe, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2, tells us Ezra the priest, who Ezra was a scribe, he brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Listen to this. He read it from before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for this purpose. From early morning until midday, so I'm guessing five or six hours, that Ezra stood there behind that wooden podium and read the law. And you know what the people did the whole time? They stood there. So if you get a little tired with my teaching... At least you got a comfy little seat. They stood and they listened. And it tells us in verse 8 of Nehemiah chapter 8, they, that is Ezra and 13 other scribes standing with him, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so they could understand the reading. And that's your role. That is part of the authoritative role you have been given when you receive the keys of the kingdom from Jesus. We carry the word of God like keys. We have the authority with the word to open the door of salvation as we bring the word of truth. And Jesus said in Revelation 3.7, speaking of himself, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. Listen to this. He says, who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. He says this. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power, but you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. And I love that. He says to the church of the open door, which I pray, Lord, I pray, we are always the church of the open door. Never the church that Dan was talking about earlier this morning. They were over in Hawaii visiting and they went to a church and they came walking in you know, in their jeans and, and, and comfy clothes like we do here. And someone came up to him and said, you know, we, we have a certain standard because we're, we're kind of going after a middle class audience here. Really? Which audience do you, think, do you think the Lord is targeting? Father, who's your target audience? You know, is it the lower class, the middle class, the upper class? Is it Gen X? Is it is old age? Is it young age? What's your target audience, Lord? You know, I think the concept of a target audience makes Jesus sick. Because his target audience is everybody. And the door of the church that loves Jesus Christ always remains open. And the keys of the kingdom are just that. They're keys that open up the door. And Jesus says, I say this to you. Because you have a little power, that's me. I don't have much in the way of power. And he says, but you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. And therefore you are the church of the open door. The keys of the scribe. That's why Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This is not the sole responsibility of the pastor game to accurately handle the word of truth, to know the Bible, to be familiar with it, to have your notes and your highlights and your, your writings and your margins, to be able to find your way around this book. This is not a hard thing. It does take diligence to accurately handle it. 
But hear me loud and clear. Your role in this fellowship is not to sit here as I hand it to you. If anything, my prayer is when we take time like this to study the Word together, it motivates you to be home in the Word, seeing things, understanding things, and growing in it so that you accurately handle the Word. And not just Pastor Rick or Pastor Les. Accurately handling the Word of Truth. That is your responsibility. It is part of the keys of the kingdom. Did you know that by 1998 in America, 98% of all churches ceased to have midweek Bible teaching. Why is that? Well, because people stopped coming. Apparently, those of you who came one Wednesday night didn't get that memo. Walked in here on a, on a rainy, cold, pouring down rain night. And I, and I, I thought coming down here, well, probably not going to be a lot of us here tonight. It's been you know several weeks since we met because of the snow and the rain is just dumping and I walked in and things got started and, and it was full in here. And I neglected to tell everybody, you know, most churches don't do Wednesday night anymore, so you might not want to come. I I don't understand that mentality, gang. We have the keys of the scribe, keys of the kingdom. We need to be people who are proficient in the Word of God. But, But there's more here. You might ask, okay, I need to understand, what is this binding and loosing thing? Because this has been used in many different ways in the church. What does it mean to bind and to loose and to have the power to do that? What's Jesus talking about here? Second type of person who received keys in the Bible, the steward. The keys of the scribe, keys of the steward. A trusted steward of a house was one who literally kept the keys. And in the morning, the steward would go out and open up the gates of the house so that anyone could come in. And in the evening, the steward would go back out and he would close and lock those gates again to protect the house. And so we see Peter... In Acts chapter 2, with the keys of the kingdom, those keys of authority, he opens wide the gate of salvation to those Jews who are gathered together for Shavuot, or the day we call Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people that day were added to the kingdom because Peter put the key in the lock and opened the gate. Acts chapter 10, Peter does it again. But now it's in a smaller environment. He goes to the house of a man named Cornelius, a Gentile, not a Jew. He's sent there by a vision that's given to him from God and he shows up not really sure what to expect and here's this Gentile asking to know the Lord. And Peter's not even sure exactly how to handle it until the Lord pours his spirit out on Cornelius and he and his family start speaking in tongues and Peter goes, I guess that God approves. And so again, Peter turns the keys of authority and salvation comes to that house. The keys of the kingdom came. The keys can either bind up or they can loose. They can lock up or they can release. Now again, there are a lot of interesting ideas as to what the binding or loosing power really is. But Jesus never leaves us guessing. He gives us context for what this really means for us. Remember I said a few minutes ago there were only two times before His resurrection that Jesus even used the word church. First time is right here. The second time is in Matthew 18. Would you turn in your Bibles over there? Matthew 18. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Jesus is speaking again and He says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. I would highlight the two words in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. 
But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And I will point out in verse 16, the one or two that you take with you are witnesses, not members of a gossip circle. You take them because they have seen what's going on. They are aware by their own eyes or by their own ears of what the problem is. So then it's legitimate to take them with you to confront a brother or sister in their sin, in love, to see them restored. Not to prove how wrong they are. It has nothing to do with gossip. If, verse 17, he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. There it is, second time it's used. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then he says, Truly I say to you, here's the context, gang, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. As a follower of Jesus Christ, are you someone who seeks to bind people up or to loose them? Do you want to see people locked up in their sin or freed from it? I, I, I was astounded when I saw this context this week. The binding and loosing thing for me had always been a spiritual thing. And I think we have authority in the spiritual realm to bind and to loose by the keys of the kingdom of heaven, by the power of Jesus Christ who is over us all and through the name of Jesus. But the binding and loosing Jesus was talking about comes right back to the core issue of our lives, the heart. Are we those who bind up or who loose the heart? To love Jesus To confess Jesus. It means to love like Jesus. To be a Jesus-loving church. In fact, it's been said, and I've always hated this saying, but it's absolutely true. You only love Jesus as much as the person you love the least. That really rattles me. Who is the person I love the least? And that's how much I love the Lord. Oh, Rick, that's just an emotional thing to make people feel guilty. Really? 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. Can't do it. You cannot love God and hate your brother. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And that word love is no less used with brother than it is with God. Same word, agape. Unconditionally. That's the responsibility of authority of those who bear the kingdom keys. By the way, for you Bible students who like to dig a little deeper, I'll just throw one more thing here for you. In verse 19, back in chapter 16, where he says, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You need to understand the direction that that's going. The phrases shall have been bound and shall have been loosed have to take into account the Greek verb tense. I know you guys just love this stuff. 
The Greek verb tense of the two words, the first word combines the future tense with the second word, the perfect passive participle. All that means is simply this, as Woost correctly translates it, whatever shall be loosed on earth shall be loosed even as it is in heaven. In other words, the direct translation, gang, if I lost you there, is this. To function under Christ's authority on earth means to do what He has already done in heaven. If I bind something on earth, guess what? As As a child of God... In the Spirit of God, if I bind correctly something on earth, it's already been bound in heaven. I am just functioning under what God has already done. To loose something on earth is not to loose something by my great power and say, Lord, I'm losing this, so I want you to do it in heaven now too. Uh Uh-uh. Other way around. It's already been loosed. You just now have received the keys from your Father to do the same on earth. What did Jesus do? He forgave. He loosed the world to a free choice of accepting Him, of confessing Him as Christ and Lord and Savior. The number one thing He has done both here and there is forgive. That's the authority we have to be forgivers. That's what the Jesus-loving church does. Not condemns, not looks for the, the right and the wrong and the morality of it. And you all know, if you've been here, we talk about morality and standards and absolutes and they're clear in Scripture. But it's always, always, always within the confines of grace. And if we act in any way that denies grace, we deny Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 was pointed out to me this week. Great verse. This is a standard by which we will make judgments as a leadership in this church. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, we're not talking about someone who says, Oh, I sinned, I asked for forgiveness, I repent. No. Someone who's caught. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one of you looking to yourself so that you, will, you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. There is one law that comes to us through Jesus Christ. Love people. Love people. And gang, that's my binding and loosing power. I'll say it this way, that is my greatest binding and loosing power. Far greater than binding or loosing spirits, binding or loosing spiritual things, the greatest binding loosing power I have is to bind or loose a person with forgiveness. That's what love looks like in the Jesus-loving church. Verse 20 After all this teaching, it says, Then he warned the disciples something curious. He said that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. (laughs) What? Jesus, we just had the confession. Peter just said, You're the Christ. So get me the bugle horn. You give me the big mouthpiece. Let's start shouting it from the mountaintops. Let's make confess. We can go now, right? No, no. Jesus says, Shh, shh, shh. Don't tell anyone what has just been revealed to you. Why? This epic moment in Caesarea Philippi ends with Jesus saying, Mum's the word. It's simply because the people still didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't understand his character. And if the apostles at this point went out and started saying, He is Messiah, He told us so, the people would have a completely skewed view of who Messiah was. They, they wouldn't get it. They were looking for His second coming. The Jews were looking for the great revolutionary king. 
And Jesus did not have intention of being that great revolutionary king, not yet, because as the Bible told us very clearly in the Hebrew Scriptures, Isaiah 53, the servant must die. The suffering servant had to take on the sin of the people. By his stripes we would be healed. That had been said. It had to happen first. But the people didn't understand. They didn't know it wasn't just about messianic power. It was about love. And they had to see the love first. Jesus knew they had to see the love played out completely on the cross. Do we yet understand Jesus' love? Hey, the confession's been stated here at the Bridge Christian Fellowship. We confess, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Absolutely. We declared it again and again. But do we understand who the Christ is? Have we yet grasped the depth of His love in such a way that, as Paul says, Christ's love compels us? Do we get His love to the point that that it changes our actions and behavior? That when a brother or sister sins, we don't immediately jump to the judgment wagon, but we're saying, how can we help restore this brother? How can we restore this sister? Yeah, but I'm the one he or she sinned against. doesn't matter. It does not matter. The responsibility, if you've been sinned against, you go to the brother who sinned against you and you seek to restore them. Because that's what the Father did. That's what the Jesus-loving church does. There are John churches and Elijah churches and Jeremiah churches the world over. Good churches, gang. With good people doing good things, calling people to repentance and morality. It's a good thing. Functioning with miraculous and great power, again, a good thing. Campaigning with evangelistic fervor, wonderful. But if we forget the love of Jesus Christ, we miss our reason for being. And I want you to hear loud and clear, that is the vision of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, to love Jesus and love like Jesus. And if you want something else, there are plenty of other styles of church you can go to. But we purpose here to be about love. Gang, if we forget the love of Jesus, not only do we miss our entire purpose for being, but we will break down, we will divide, we will lose all effectiveness in the world. We might as well close up shop. Let me put it this way. Calls to repentance and morality and signs and wonders and compassion and evangelism, though all good things are not the reason for our being, they are the result of our being in love with Jesus. And please don't miss this. All those things that the churches will try and be one or the other or the other. All of those things can and will be a part of this fellowship. If we purpose to be the Jesus-loving church, it all comes into play. People start to repent. And we don't have to go out there and hammer them to get it to happen. Because where the love of Christ is, repentance follows very quickly. It's God's kindness, Paul says, that leads us to repentance. And so if we purpose to be a loving church, people will repent. And by the way, this is very important, they're not going to repent from sin. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to repent to Jesus. It's a totally different attitude. This this is another thing that just smacked me right between the eyes this week. That repentance, true godly repentance, is not from sin, it's to the Lord. To repent from sin is religious exercise. It has me repenting out of guilt, looking over my shoulder, saying, oh, I, I, I don't want to be like that anymore. I'm going to try really hard not to be like that. That's repentance from sin. Repentance to Jesus 
is running headlong into the love of Christ and all that sin just falls away. The guilt is gone. That stuff that holds us back. I want to be one who repents, turns to the Lord. Let it be that positive, wonderful motivation of His love that draws me forward, not of religion that has me always looking back. Acts 20, verse 20, Paul said, I did not shrink from you to declaring anything to you that was profitable, teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's repentance. And that will happen in the Jesus-loving church. Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders will happen in the Jesus-loving church. Because where our people gather together in passionate love for their Lord and love for each other, healing will take place. We don't have to force it. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to cry out even for it. It will happen because we are a people who are submerged in the love of Christ. The supernatural will just become the natural. It will become so commonplace that we won't even really think about it as miraculous. We'll just say, praise Jesus and move on. As Jim said to me on Wednesday night, if I may use you as an example, been having knee problems to the point that he was looking at having to have knee surgery. Knee replacement surgery, which Larry knows is a whole lot of fun. And they began praying. And brothers and sisters around Jim began praying. You know what? His knees are fine. Supernatural miracle. No, it's the natural commonplace of Jesus at work among a people who love each other. The Jesus-loving church. Signs and wonders are going to happen, gang, and have happened. Not because we go in for thrills and chills. We just expect the miraculous from the Lord who loves us as we love Him and love each other. And evangelism takes place because we can't stop talking about Jesus. That's evangelism. Not door knocking or bring a friend Sunday. That just kills me. We're going to have bring a friend Sunday because the rest of the year we really don't want you to. Isn't every Sunday bring a friend Sunday? Isn't every day bring a friend to Jesus day? It is if you love Him. It is if you have confessed Him and you can't help stop talking about Him. I love Peter and John in Acts 4.20. We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. You can try to shut us up. You can put us in prison. We can't stop. In fact, if you put us in prison, we're just going to write hymns. We're <laughs> just going to start singing. Because we love Him so much. Because He loves us so much. Because that's what the Jesus-loving church is all about. Jesus says, you confess Me then I will build my church. Put me first in all you do. Love me. I'll take care of the rest. And so this morning, dear fellowship, I ask you, who do you say that He is? Who do you say that Jesus is?